0: Nehemiah chapter 13, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 4, and we'll read down to verse number 9. The Bible says, Before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. He had prepared for him a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense, and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, and the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and to the porters and the offerings to the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king. And after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. I pray, Father that You would have Your will and way with each and every one of us. Father, we've come to meet with You this morning, and we've set our hearts on this endeavor. So I pray, Lord, that You would just move effectually in this place, and that, Lord, You'd receive much glory as we submit in obedience to You, as You deal with our lives, and we yield unto You, Lord, that You'd receive much glory. Father, we love You, we thank You, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, to remind you of a little bit of the context of this passage before we get into the meat of the message, the children of Israel were carried away into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And for 70 years they dwelt there. Uh, they dwelt there throughout those seven decades, but also through the transition from one world empire to another. The Medo-Persian Empire, and this is uh, revealed to us, talked about in Daniel chapter 5, uh, they, they overthrow, they sack Babylon, and they overthrow the Babylonian empire. God raised up a leader by the name of Cyrus over the Medo-Persian Empire and put in Cyrus' heart to let the children of Israel go back to the land of Israel and to rebuild the temple. And God had prophesied long before Cyrus was ever a a twinkling in his daddy's eye. The Word of God had already said that Cyrus the Great would be the man that God would use to lead the children of Israel or allow them, permit them to be led back to the land of Israel." So a contingent of priests, uh, uh, under the leadership of a man named Ezra, goes back to the land. And they undertake the work of rebuilding the temple. And this endeavor is fraught with many pitfalls and setbacks and obstacles. But by the good hand of God, they rebuild the temple. Some years later, a man by the name of Nehemiah, uh, the Lord stirs his heart back in uh, Persia. He's in Shushan in the palace, Shushan being the capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, he, The Lord stirs Nehemiah's heart that though the temple has been rebuilt, the walls still lay waste. And they can't have any protection, they can't have any security, they can't rightly have a city if they don't have walls. And so Nehemiah goes back with a contingent of men and, and he stirs up the people to finish the work of God and to rebuild the walls around the city. Well, again, this endeavor is fraught with many obstacles, setbacks, and uh, challenges. And there are certain enemies, the Bible says, uh, a man by the name of Sandalite, and Horonite, a man by the name of Tobiah that's mentioned in our passage here. Uh, they are stirred up, and a man by the name of Jeshur, an Arabian, they are stirred up to stop the work of God. You mark it down, friend, any time you commit your life to do something for God, the devil is going to get stirred up about that. Anytime a church commits in its its collective heart to do something for the Lord and the people begin to labor together and work together and try to move forward towards a, a singular goal of glorifying the Lord and accomplishing His will, the devil is going to get stirred up and try to stop the work of God. But by the good hand of God, the enemy was thwarted and the wall is built. You might say, well, preacher, that's good and everything. I'm glad. I appreciate the history lesson. But what in the world does that have to do with me? Could I remind you that I think in these three realities, these three truths, we have a fit picture of the situation that you and I find ourselves in, in this church age. Uh, Let me say, number one, uh, that the fact that the temple was rebuilt gave them all the resources they needed to serve God. Uh, Worship in the Old Testament was very geographically oriented. The place there in Jerusalem, the hill where the temple sat, was a sacred and a hallowed place. In fact, Daniel, when he's in Babylon, when he prays, he prays three times a day, facing, looking towards Jerusalem in response to the promise that God had given Solomon when the temple was consecrated and dedicated. God had told Solomon, If you disobey me, if you rebel against me, I'm going to scatter you to the wind. But if you repent, and if you look back towards this, place this hill and in faith call unto me and turn your life to me then i'll bring you back into this place and so this temple being rebuilt was a big deal they had no means really to worship god effectively without the temple but now the temple has been constructed and there's no reason that they can't serve god they have all the resources that they need to serve god Can I remind you that the New Testament truth reveals this, that your body and my body, if we're saved by the grace of God, we are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Ghost. Now listen, you may not be very pleased with your body, I may not be very pleased with mine. Somebody say amen with that. Uh, Me and Brother Ronnie were talking this morning about this body, you know, when you're young, and Paul says this vile body be made like in His glorious body. Young people have a problem with that. They think, vile? Man, my body ain't vile. But you let a few decades get on you, you'll know what Brother Paul meant. Amen? As it begins to ache and creak and groan, you get to a place in life where when you go to bed, you put more you in the nightstand than you put in the bed at night. This vile body, vile body. But in spite of the infirmity of our flesh, the frailty of our vessel, the Bible also reminds us that we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. We've been enabled and equipped and empowered to serve God. Paul said it this way, he's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You and I have all the resources we need to live for the Lord in this day. Then the wall was restored. This is a reminder that they had the freedom to serve God. It's all good to have a temple, but listen, if the enemy was constantly thwarting you, if you had no sense of security and safety, you had no freedom to serve God. Nobody's going to come to the temple without a wall to protect them. And it's a reminder to me that you and I in this day of grace that we live in, we have the freedom to serve God. I don't have time to get into all of it, but suffice it to say that freedom, as biblically defined, is a lot different than the concept of freedom that we have today. Uh, the Bible says that, uh, that if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. See, a lost person is not free. A lost person can only do what a sinful flesh tells him to do. A saved person is truly, is truly free. He can yield his instru- his members as instruments of unrighteousness, or he can yield his members as instruments of righteousness. He is free indeed. He has a choice. He can truly make the decision of what he wants to do. And you and I in this day that we live in, we've been given the freedom. Can't nobody stop you from serving God? If you think somebody can stop you from serving God, that's just the vehicle, that's just the the avatar of your desire to not serve God. You've said, well, I'm going to let that person stop me from serving God. The fact is, nobody can stop you from serving God and nobody can make you serve God. I've learned in going on a decade of pastoring, you can't make anybody do anything they don't want to do. If you don't want to serve God, you'll find an excuse, you'll find a reason. No one can make you serve God. We have the freedom to do as we please. And then the fact that the enemy was rebuffed is a reminder to us that they had the ability to serve God. The enemy could not thwart them. The enemy could not stop them. Satan, listen, the Bible says about the church at the gates of hell, shall not prevail against it. John reminded us the greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. The fact that Satan can only have his will and way with us if we choose to allow him to have his will and his way with us. You remember that that, that Satan, he asked by name for Peter. Oh, Peter was a pretty uh, popular figure in the Gospels. Uh, Satan asked for him by name. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you. Oh yeah, Peter, he wants everybody, but he really has his eye on you. He's desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but... I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when, not and if, and when thou art converted, he says, strengthen the brethren. The fact is this, the devil, he is a terrible, terrifying foe, but he is also uh, one that has been restrained by the uh, providence of God, and he cannot, unless we allow him to, have dominance and have authority in our life, unless we yield unto him. It's the reason the Bible says we're to give no place to the devil. Why does it say that? Because He ain't got no place, rightfully. So if He's going to have a place in our life, we have to give Him a place. And this is a reminder too, by the way, that the, the three enemies that the believer faces in this dispensation of grace are present here. The temple being rebuilt is a reminder that the flesh cannot stop us from serving God. The wall being rebuilt is a reminder that the world cannot stop us from serving God. And the enemy being rebuffed, that's a reminder that Satan cannot stop us from serving God. Now I know what you're expecting. Hey, everything's the way it ought to be, so you're gonna come into the end of Nehemiah, to the 13th chapter, and everything's gonna be glorious, man. They're gonna be, I mean, they're gonna be seeing people, uh, turn to the God of Israel left and right. They're gonna be worshiping in sincerity of heart and in truth. They're gonna be walking in righteousness. And yet, that's not what we find. We come to the 13th chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and the whole city is an absolute mess. And you know, again, it's a reminder to me, very often we see this in people's lives. We like to play the victim. Victimhood has a certain currency in today's culture. There used to be a time when heroics had a certain currency in culture. People wanted to be a hero, right? That's why little boys wanted to grow up to be firefighters and policemen and soldiers, because heroics had a certain currency in our society. Man, it ain't like that anymore. Nowadays, those people are looked at with disdain and and disregard. Now you want to be a victim. Who can be the most marginalized person, right? It's all about the Olympics of suffering. Who's been through it more than anyone else has been through it? It's wicked. It's out of hell. Somebody say amen right there. Uh, Listen, the fact is uh, that though we live in a day where victimhood has a certain currency to it, And because we live in such a society, you'll hear people say all the time, talk about, well, I wish I could do better, but. Well, I wish I could serve God, but. Well, one of these days I'm going to, but. The fact of the matter is, you and I, we have everything we need right here, right now, if we're saved by the grace of God, to serve God and to give Him glory in our lives. The question is not, can we? The question is, will we? And so I find that when you come to Nehemiah 13, Israel's spiritual house is in serious disrepair. They have everything they need, but there's some things they have to get sorted out before they can ever live to their fullest potential for their God. We talked last week about their association. And when they come, the first three verses of this chapter talks about the mixed multitude that was among them. And again, I'd remind you that wasn't a racial thing, that was a spiritual thing. It wasn't Israel versus any other race, but it was the Moabites, it was the Ammonites, because they had withstood the progress of the people of God through the wilderness, and they had been spiritual adversaries that had sought to corrupt and disrupt the work of God in their life. And so they had to get their associations right, before their house could be in order. Listen, I'm all for trying to reach people. Somebody say amen there. I, I am. Listen, I understand that Christ ate with publicans and sinners. I understand that we can't help a world that we will not touch. But I'd remind you of this, that, listen, Christ may, ha- may have influenced sinners, but He never allowed sinners to influence Him. Uh, the Bible says He was separate from sinners. Not separate geographically, but separate spiritually. He didn't live like them. He, he sought to reach them. He was a friend to them. We should be friends to those that are without, those that are lost, those that don't know the Lord, but we should not adopt their lifestyle. We should not allow them to influence us. We've got to get our associations right. And then let me give you the second truth, and this will be the message this morning. I believe in this passage. We have an important, important command to get our sanctification right. Now, the word sanctification is a big $10 word. You know what it means? Literally, it means to cleanse and to set apart. In fact, there are two words that sort of mean this in your Bible. Sanctification and consecration. And you'll find that they both have a a certain emphasis and, and a certain connotation. Sanctification means to cleanse and to set apart with a heavy emphasis on the idea of cleansing. Consecration means to cleanse and to set apart with a heavy emphasis on the idea of setting apart. And so, I believe in this passage what we find when Nehemiah gets back to the land of Israel, he finds that the house of God has been corrupted. There's some things that should have been there that weren't there, and there's some things that shouldn't have been there that were there. Can I say to you that for a lot of us, we need to take inventory of our life. And we need to look at our life, we need to ask ourselves, are the right things in my life and are the wrong things out of my life? As believers, listen. I'm telling you this: until we will walk with God in holiness, we're never going to get a, 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 a apprehend a sense of fulfillment and peace and contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not contentment alone. You know why? Because there's a lot of folks that are contented to be a hot mess. Godliness with contentment, and not just godliness alone. By the way, you know why? Because there's a lot of folks that's godly, but they just ain't happy about it. Amen. They walk around with a sour look on their face like the Pharisees of old. Man, they're just miserable all the time. It's godliness with contentment is great gain. We're going to have to get our sanctification right. Some of us, are some things we need to get out of our life if we're ever going to get our spiritual house in order. And some of us, it's not that there's something there that shouldn't be. Some of us, there's some things that should be there that aren't there that we're going to have to put in our life if we're going to get them right. Nehemiah comes back to Israel and he finds this, that a man by the name of Eliashib, our preacher a couple weeks ago, preached a, a great, the, it was by far the best message I've ever heard on Eliashib. Of course, it was the only message I've ever heard on Eliashib. But, but I believe even if I'd heard a hundred others, it still would have probably been the best. And so I'm not really preaching on him per se, but Eliashib is the high priest. And when Nehemiah gets back to the land of Israel, he finds that in the temple there were certain storage houses that were used to store the the daily provisions that were needed for the maintenance of the temple. Some of these things would have been for sacrifices. Some of it would have been to provide for the Levites. The priests that lived there had to eat, just like everybody has to eat, just like you'll have to eat when you get out of here. And so they had to be fed. These provisions were stored in these storehouses. When Nehemiah gets back, you know what he finds? He finds the temple has been defiled. Because all of the things that should have been there, all of the oil and the, and the meal and the meat offering and the frankincense and the, the new wine, all this stuff, ain't none of it there. And he walks into this storage house and who does he find but old Tobiah, the enemy of God's people, lounging up in there, got everything spread out. And he's got a couch and he's got a bed over here. He's got a dining room table. He's got an entertainment center. He's got everything laid out in this storage house and he's living in the house of God. Nehemiah says, this isn't right. God can never bless this house while the things that shouldn't be in here are in here and the things that should be in here are missing. I want to give you three simple thoughts about getting our sanctification right this morning and then we'll close. Uh, When I look at this act of defilement, and that's what it was, it was an act of defilement, I see three important things. One, I want you to notice with me, the reason for this defilement. Listen, it's good to recognize you're in a mess it's even better to try to figure out how you got into that mess in the first place. And I would imagine the first question that Nehemiah asked when he walks in the door, when he goes into the temple, when he looks into the storehouse, and when he sees this fellow in there lounging around, I'm sure the first thing that he asked was, how did this happen? Very often there are believers whose lives are a mess, and it would behoove them to stop and ask this question, hey, man, how did I get to this place? I used to go to church and be faithful going to church. I used to read my Bible. I used to pray. I used to live for the Lord. I used to pass out tracts, witness to people. I used to have a good testimony. How did I get in this condition? I see three things that led to this. Number one, let me say, they had an abandonment problem that led to this defilement. Look at verse number five. The Bible says this, He had prepared for him a great chamber where aforetime, notice that word, aforetime. You know what that means? Where before. Before. Where at one time, aforetime, they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, the new wine and the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. Now, something you'll find, and we'll get to it maybe next week or the week after, is that the children of Israel had ceased bringing their tithes into the temple. Now, in that day, of course, you could tithe with money, but it was very much an agrarian society where there was a lot of bartering that took place. And so God had provisions that if they had a crop of corn, they were to bring the tithe of the corn and give it to the temple. If they had a flock of animals that were, uh, of sheep that were born, they were to bring a tithe of that. If they had a harvest of grapes, they were to bring a tithe of that. And you might say, well, preacher, what in the world did the temple use that for? This is what they used it for. These became the provisions for the priests that labored and lived in the temple. And the fact that the Bible says, it does not say that they showed up, got all this stuff, and pitched it out on the sidewalk. It says that Eliashib prepared him a chamber in the place where aforetime, where at one time they used to bring these things in. I would venture to say this, that probably Elisha would have had a harder time setting Tobiah up in this place to lounge around to live and, and, and to feast off of the prophets of the temple if that storage house had been being used for storage. You know what happened? The people abandoned their responsibility and the devil stepped in and filled the empty space. They had ceased bringing their tithe into the temple. And you know what that left? That left a big old empty room. And Tobiah walked by and he said, Hey, I wouldn't mind living here. And Eliashib said, Alright, we'll set you up in here. You know, we often think that embracing sin is going to cause us to abandon serving God and living for the Lord, being faithful to church, uh, working for the Lord. And that can and does happen. I have seen people that was, I mean, I'm talking about going uh, going fast and furious for the Lord and serving the Lord, and they allowed sin into their life. And that sin soured them, and and it disrupted their walk with God, and it caused them to get out of church. I have seen that happen. You probably have too. But, you know, I think we're missing it. I think more often in this day that we live in, what happens is when people abandon the house and work of God, it often creates a vacuum in their life that Satan then uses to put sin in their life and to cause them to go astray. In other words, I think sometimes we get the cart before the horse. I don't think, generally speaking, there are cases where people get sin in their life and give up on the house of God. But you know what I'm seeing? Can I just speak my heart to you as a pastor? You know what I'm seeing today? I'm seeing people abandon the house of God and then getting into sin. I'm seeing people, what they knew they should have been doing, walking away from it, and then sin, finding an entrance and a place and a lodging, a dwelling place in their life. Listen, I I promise you this. This place needs you, uh, and you need this place. Somebody say amen to that. I need church. I need the house of God. I need the preaching of the Word of God. Uh, there's nothing, there's no reason it wouldn't be me in that ditch except God has given me some influences, some people in my life, and the house of God is the chief one that keeps me walking with the Lord. More often, it is the case that our abandoning service leads to our embrace of sin. They neglected to fill the storehouses, so the devil turned them into playhouses. And the same thing is true in your life. If you don't fill your life with the right things, the devil will fill your life with the wrong things. Look down to verse number 6. The Bible says this, But in all this time, this is Nehemiah, of course, speaking, he says, But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Let me say number two, they had an authority problem. Now, some could maybe say this, that Nehemiah bore some responsibility here. I don't know that I would lob that accusation against him, but I think suffice it to say, had Nehemiah been in Israel and not in Persia, there's probably a good likelihood this never would have happened. When he shows up and sees this mess, what does he do? Man, he runs Tobiah out. Later on we find out he runs Eliashib out. Nehemiah, he did not mind cleaning the house if he needed to. And I would venture to say that had the authority figure that God had instituted in their life been present... Tobiah would have never had the boldness to try to set up shop in the house of God. Let me say that everyone in their life needs authority. Everyone. Authority is a divine institution. God is an authoritative God. And when He created man, He created man to respond and to need that authority. We all need somebody in our life that we are accountable to. We all need somebody in our life that we say, I can't do this, I can't do that, because what would I say to them? It's indisputable that this spiritual decline occurred when the Israelites were without authority in their life. You know, that's what's so dangerous about getting out of church. What's so dangerous about getting out of church, you take all the good influence that God gives you through the local church and rip that out of your life, and then you place yourself in a position where there's no one that can rightly say to you, hey, you're walking wrong, you're living wrong, you're doing wrong. If that's not a recipe for calamity, I don't know what is. Uh, The fact is, the the Bible says Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for it. Christ sees value in the church. And we should too. we got to get the wrong things out, get the right things in. I see they had an authority problem, but look down at verse number 4. The Bible says something interesting later in the chapter, but it says in verse 4, Before this Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Now, let me just tell you, that's a strange alliance. I mean, just a a, a few months earlier, Eliashib is working to build the wall, and Tobiah is working hard as he can to destroy the wall. How did these two individuals wind up the best of friends and allies? You see, the children of Israel had an alliance problem, and that alliance problem was with Tobiah. Now, we find later on in verse 28 probably what caused it. Verse number 28 says this, One of the sons of Joedah... The son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Now, Sanballat was the companion of Tobiah. Sanballat and Tobiah and Jeshua were the three men withstanding the work of God. And what we find, I don't, I don't have time, I can't do it as eloquently as the preacher did the other day, but what we find is that the grandson of Eliashib was married unto the daughter of Sanballat. And this created an unholy alliance that somehow gave entrance to Eliashib, making alliance, making common cause with Tobiah. Can I just say this simply? That I promise you, you abandon the work in the house of God. You you cast off the divine authority that God's put in your life and mine. The devil will make sure that there is some person there to enable, encourage, and ennoble your disobedience. I was talking a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. I'm not against the internet, although I'm against a lot of what's on it. I'm not against social media, although I'm against a lot of what it does. I I don't think they're wrong intrinsically in and of themselves. But you know one of the nefarious, dangerous things about social media today is it has made all of us both performers and audience members in each other's lives. That social media group of whoever it is that's following after you, very often it has stripped away all the meaning and depth from social interaction and left only the negative aspects of it. So that essentially when people make the wrong decision, they can always find six, seven, eight hundred people that are going to like it, applaud it, say good job, say way to go, say that's the right decision. And it has created an echo chamber for our worst impulses. The devil always will have somebody there. When you make up your mind to do wrong, the devil will always have someone there to tell you you're doing right. The devil will always have some... Man, listen, I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen it a thousand times. I've I've seen... i got to be careful here. I've seen it a thousand times. I've, I've seen people get out of church, get out of the will of God, and they'll always find some friend, some person, some preacher, some church that will glorify what they've done and tell them how, boy, now they've found the path and now they're doing the right thing and they're just walking in liberty and they're just walking in freedom. You better be careful with people that talk to you like that. A flattering tongue is a dangerous thing. I'd lot rather have a faithful friend that will tell me when I'm wrong than a flattering friend that will tell me I'm right even when I'm wrong. I see that they had an alliance problem. They had the wrong kind of people in their life. And the devil will always put the wrong kind of person there. So I see the reasons for this defilement. How did they respond? Look at verse number 8. I like Nehemiah. I like how he acts here. The Bible says this, It grieved me sore, Nehemiah said. It grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber." I mean, son, it it looked like an episode of Cops out there. TVs flying out the front door, couches, clothes being strewn on the court of the house of God. Nehemiah said, we're going to get this garbage out of here and get things right. You know, that's the same attitude we ought to have about getting our life right. You remember Paul talked about the church at Corinth and their repentance. And he said this, oh, what vengeance. He's talking about their repentance. He said, what vengeance it wrought in you. You know what I think he's saying? I think he's saying this. When you was wrong, you was really wrong. But when you made up your mind to get right, you got right with a vengeance. You hated that sin that had pulled you away from God. You hated that influence that had drawn you from His blessed fellowship. You hated those things that disrupted your walk with Him. And you treated them with vitriol and with vengeance. You said, listen, i got some ground to make up, so I'm going to get some things squared away and get some things right. I see three things that Nehemiah did. Notice, first off, if we're ever going to get our our sanctification right in our life, first there's going to have to be a convicting that takes place. He said, it grieved me sore. You know, part of our problem today, we just flat out ain't bothered by our sin anymore. It has become so normalized. It has become, become such a common thing anymore. There's always somebody to clap for us to tell us they're proud of us and how independent and strong we're being for making that decision. And it has become so normalized that we're just not bothered over it anymore. One old man of God said this, we'll never be broken from our sin until we're broken over our sin. Until we're bothered. You say, preacher, how can I do that? I can't elicit an emotion within me. Sure you can. If you get your heart and mind fixed on the Word of God, if you spend more time in that book and less time in your own ego and in your own world, you'll begin to see things the way God sees things. You'll begin to hate sin the way God hates sin and love the sinner the way God loves the sinner. You'll begin to hate your own sin instead of spending all your time hating the sin of everybody else. I find in this passage there had to be a convicting. Let me say number two, there had to be a casting that took place. He throws all that stuff out of there. It would have been good if he had said, hey, this bothers me. But you know what a lot of us do? Some of you might do it this morning. You might come to an altar and weep and say, yeah, Lord, you're right. And then turn around and walk out those double doors and never do anything about it in your life. Can I, can I use this word with it? Repentance. Repentance. Throwing some things out of your life. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, wait, preacher, you're getting all theologically minded on me. Preacher, wait a minute now. Repentance is not a work. If repentance is a work, then repentance is a part of salvation. We're saved by works. No, repentance is an attitude of the heart, same way faith is. But it produces an action. Just as faith does. Faith is not works, but faith, if it's real faith, will produce a work in your life. Repentance is not the act of casting these things out. It is the decision, the mindset that I'm tired of going this way, now I'm going to go this way. This has gotten me in a mess, so now I'm going to change direction in my life. But how could you change direction in your life and not throw that garbage out on the front lawn? How could you claim... To have a repentant heart and not cast those things out of your life. The fact is, for this casting to take place, we gotta be bothered, we've got to be convicted, we've got to cast it out. Then look at verse number nine. The Bible says this, Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. There had to be a cleansing that took place. Here's the pattern you get bothered by your sin. You get convicted over it. you say, Yeah, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. And then you then you cast those things out of your life. You say, Lord, I've made up my mind. I'm not going to walk in unrighteousness anymore. Then you say, now, Lord, please forgive me. I know I've done wrong. Cleanse me. That's the Old Testament word, isn't it? In Psalms 51, cleanse me. Create a right heart within me. Cleanse me, Lord. That's what forgiveness is. We're asking God to wash those things out of our life. Cleanse me, Lord. You see, if these things are going to be removed, this is the process. You've got, you've got to be bothered by the fact that they're even present in your life then you've got to cast those things out of your life. And that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean pouring the liquor down the drain. It doesn't mean flushing the dope down the toilet. You will do those things if you're truly repentant. But what it means is saying, I'm done with that lifestyle. And I'm going to cast that stuff out of my life. And then a cleansing. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. I see the removal of this defilement. And then finally, and I'm done, I see the replacement of this defilement. The Bible talks in the New Testament, Christ told a parable about a man that had a, a devil... And that devil was cast out of him. And the Bible says that he went out and walked around from place to place. And when he came back to his house, he found it swept and clean and empty and went and took seven devils like unto himself. And it's a picture of self-reformation without spiritual uh, response. Uh, in other words, that's the reason that uh, that New Year's resolutions don't work. And, and if, We all wind up fatter in February, right? You know why? Because we commit we want to do things differently, but oftentimes we don't change our behavior in response to it. I told you at the beginning of the message we gotta we gotta get there's some wrong things we gotta get out, but there's some right things we've got to get back in. Nehemiah, he said, Here's some things we need to get out. He threw out Tobiah, he threw out all of his stuff, and he said, All right, scrub this place clean. I don't ever want to know he was here. But then it he doesn't stop there. The Bible says he brought three things in. Verse nine. He says, thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. What significance do you think that bears? I think those three things represent the three categories of things that we need to put in our life as God is dealing with us and as we are cleansing our life from unrighteous things. These are the things we need to put in. When he says vessels, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the surrender of our will unto God. A vessel, after all, cannot rightly be used if it bears any will of its own. The only way a vessel is useful is if it has no will. A vessel means simply a container some kind. It can mean a a glass that you put water in. It can mean a boat that you put people in. It can mean any number of things, but what it entails is something that's empty and something that bears no volition or will of its own. It's merely there to be taken in hand or taken in control and to be used for the purposes of another person. You know, Paul talked about the life of the believer and described us as vessels. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.20, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth. And some to honor, he said, and some to dishonor. That means some that's broken and some that ain't broken. Some that's working, some that ain't working. Some that's dirty, some that's clean. He says, if a man therefore purge himself from these, well, what are these? These obviously are not the the gold and the silver. These obviously are not the vessels of honor. These are the vessels of dishonor. He says, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. Can I ask you something? Are you a vessel fit for the Master's use? Is your will so yielded unto His that He can take you in hand and use you for His glory? The same way that you just reach out and grab that cup of sweet tea and take a big old drink, can God just reach out and grab you and move you where He wants to and put you where He needs to? The fact is, here's the problem. They got in this mess because they were exerting their will above God's will in the first place. Now their will has been broken now they recognize that they've sinned. So what are they to do in response? They're to take that will and give it to God so He can paste it back together and, and mold it and shape it anew and use it for His glory. I, I see the vessels. It makes me think of the surrender of our will. I, I see not only the vessels. The Bible says that He brought in the meat offering. Now, uh, buckle in. we got about six hours of work to do on this meat offering, all right? I hope you brought a sandwich. Now, I'm going to try to condense it. In the Old Testament, there were basically five offerings that the Old Testament priests would give. Uh, There was the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the meat offering, and the peace offering. And these offerings were in two different categories. There were what was called sin offerings. Those were offerings that were given when a person had sinned against God, and they needed to have that sin atoned for and made right. The sin offering and trespass offering were these. And then there were what we call sweet savor offerings. These were given not when a person had messed up and done something wrong, but when they just wanted to come and worship God. And these offerings presented Christ as being perfect in presenting Himself before God as our mediator, but it also represented the believer in coming to God in worship. In all three of these, the burnt, the peace, and the meat offering, these are sweet savor offerings, sin is nowhere hinted at. That's not the focus, that's not the attention. The purpose is merely to present the person as coming and worshipping before the Lord. So a meat offering was a sweet savor offering, it was a worship offering. It's interesting because the meat offering is unique amongst all the other five offerings in this, that it had no meat. Do you hear know what I just said? The meat offering had no meat. You think God ain't got a sense of humor? All the other four did, but that one had no meat. But in actuality, it's because the term meat just refers to sustenance. And it was called a meat offering because it referred to meat as being man's domain and man's food. For instance, in Genesis 1.29, God told Adam, Behold, I have given you every green herb, or every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. Prior to the flood, man didn't eat meat. Uh, Meat was viewed, and the taking of sentient life was something that was viewed as being exclusively in God's domain. So God said this, when you want to give me meat, you offer a life, a sacrifice. A sheep is to be offered unto me. But when you want meat, when you need to be satisfied, you can go out and you can eat the fruit of the trees and the herbs and the plants that grow out of the ground. And this is where the meat offering gets its name. Because it, it didn't bear any meat because it was presented as man's meat being offered unto God. Man's food being offered unto God. Plant life was man's meat, was man's uh, domain. And this oper- offering, listen carefully, it represented the worshiper offering to God through service to others. In other words, it was the aspect of Christ's life through which He served His Father by serving the needs of others. And it 's a reminder of work and service. you know when we and you see this a lot in, in people's lives, when they 've been living wrong, and they spend Saturday night at the bar getting drunk and wake up Sunday morning getting hung over, then God saves them, God changes their life. Uh, they Listen, uh, <laughs> I won't say this reverently, I really do. Uh, all, all they do is fast forward the clock about 12 hours and get drunk on something different. Amen. Oh boy, you took that wrong get all spiritual on me. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying this, the devil's going to put things in your life. He's going to put people in your life. He's going to put activities in your life. He's going to put things, uh, endeavors to put your energies toward in your life. And when all those things are gone from your life, you know what happens if you don't fill it up with some new activity? You're going to come home, find your house swept and clean and say, how boring. You know what you need to do when you get your life right? You need to put the work and service of God back in there. Man, spend your time around God's people, serving the Lord, living for God. You think life ain't exciting? Go out and start door knocking. You think life ain't interesting? You won't believe the things that will happen when you're out knocking on doors and witnessing to people. Man, you think life ain't entertaining? Start teaching a Sunday school class. Start living for the Lord. Put your work and service in your life. Serving the Lord, laboring for Him. And then finally, and I'm done, I see frankincense is mentioned. Now, frankincense is not an unfamiliar word to us or an unfamiliar item to us. It's found all throughout the Word of God. Actually, I believe about 17 times it's mentioned in the Word of God. But we find that it is always deeply associated with two things. The first is worship. The Bible says in Matthew 2.11 that when the wise men came, they brought three gifts to worship the Christ child. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold spoke to his ministry and office as king. The myrrh, uh, being an embalming spice, spoke to his ministry and office as sacrifice. And the frankincense, being a spice that was used in the priesthood, spoke of his prayer life, His intercession for us, Him as high priest interceding for us. They brought these things to worship the Lord, but also this frankincense speaks of prayer and of supplication. The Bible says in Revelation 8, uh, 3 and 4, that another angel, John sees, came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angels' hands. Same thing as described in Revelation 5 eight. John says that when he had taken the book, speaking of the Lamb, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Here's what I'm getting at. I'm saying in your life, the way that you respond to getting some things cleaned out of your life, you put in the surrender of your will. Lord, I've been living according to my way and my will... Now I'm going to give my will to you, and you just use me as you please. You put your service and work in your life. Start living for the Lord, man. Start serving God. Get faithful to the house of God. I'll tell you this, man. We have so much going on around here. We'll keep you busy all week. We'll have you here Monday night. We'll have you here Tuesday. We'll have you here Wednesday. We'll have you here Friday. We'll have you here half the Saturdays out of a month. We'll have you here Sunday morning, Sunday night. If you're bored, we'll unlock the place on Thursday. Let's just come in and pray for the preacher. We'll get you busy in the things of God. You'll, you'll You'll have more to do than you'll know what to do with. We need to put the work and service. We also need to put worship and supplication back into our lives. You need to be, uh, you need to be in the presence of God through prayer, through reading your Bible, through, through sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. It ain't enough to get the bad things out. You've got to put the right things in. And I tell you this, a lot of our problem, we want God to do something spectacular with us, but we have not adjusted our life in such a condition so that God can use us and do something in our life. We want our spiritual house in order. But the fact is, we won't even get our temporal house in order. We want our spiritual house in order, and Tobias laying up in the house of God. We want our spiritual house in order, but we're unwilling to get the things out that need to be gotten out and put the things in that need to be put in. We need to start that work today. A convicting, a casting, and a cleansing has to take place in our lives. I hope it'll start at this altar for you this morning.